passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, there's no argument that would be able to convince me of what I was just about to do. Uh, It made zero sense on the outside, but yet on the inside it made perfect sense. And the only logical explanation for it was, it must be love. Of course, I wasn't going to dare say that out loud. Crystal and I had only been dating for a few weeks, and so there was no way that I was going to admit that it was love. But that was the only logical explanation for what I was about to do. I drove four hours to go pick her up, drove her four hours to her house, and then drove four hours home by myself. All I got out of that trip was uh, an emptier gas tank and a lighter checkbook for buying the food. It made zero sense on the outside, but love makes us do crazy things. I pulled a couple all-nighters in college, uh, but none of those were actually to study. They were all just dedicated to creating gifts for Crystal. Love makes us do crazy things. There was one time right after I moved to Chicago, and and she, I'm sure, is feeling nice and embarrassed right now. Um, Right after I moved to Chicago, Crystal was still living in northwest Iowa and spur of the moment decided to drive 12 hours to come and see her uh, just to spend about a day with her before driving back. There was one time where I flew from Chicago to Omaha to buy an engagement ring, fly back, stayed up all night. I guess I pulled one all-nighter for school uh, because I had a final the next day. To prepare for that, love makes us do crazy things. I'm sure all of you can relate. I'm sure all of us uh, recognize some of the crazy things that love has made us to do. I just think of of parents uh, of newborn children, uh, of parents for the first time, and the fact that they wake up at all hours of the night to take care of this child when they'd much rather be sleeping. Why? Because of love. Or parents of teenagers who just get their license. They stay up all night too, but for a completely different reason. They want to make sure that the one that they love is still safe. Last year, when he was accepting his MVP award in the NBA, for the NBA, Kevin Durant actually shared that his mother would go without eating for days at a time so that way she could make sure her children had enough food to eat. Love makes us do crazy things. What about you? I'm sure if we took the time to go around this room, we could share some of the crazy things that love has caused us to do, that has actually compelled us to do, almost like we didn't have a choice in those things. Some people have moved back to the northwest Iowa area to take care of their parents because of love. Some people actually have moved to Northwest Iowa to be closer to their grandkids only because of love. Love makes us do crazy things. This morning we're starting a new three-week series on this very topic, on love and the crazy things that it leads us to do. I'm sure each and every one of us are familiar with or know of stories of people who have done radical things for the gospel. 
I have actually friends who have left everything that they own here in the United States to go overseas to share the gospel with those who have never heard it before. I have friends who have actually left behind six-figure salaries so that way they felt God calling them into vocational ministry to serve him. I know people who have give, uh, who do give sacrificially to the church. I, I've heard stories of those who have chosen death over denying Christ. And when we hear all of these radical things that people do for God, we can sometimes times come away just feeling a little bit guilty. I read the book Radical by David Platt a number of years ago. Great book, but I have to be honest, when I got done reading it, I walked away and I just felt guilty. I felt like I wasn't uh, on the same level as the people that he was talking about in that book. We can hear stories of people on the other side of the world and what they're enduring for the sake of the gospel. And yet I feel guilty because sometimes I can't even invite friends to church. We can beat ourselves up because we feel like a coward. How is it that some people feel or seem so bold and some people seem so faithful? The answer is simple. Love. The Bible speaks about this type of love. A love that is so passionate that it overcomes fear. A love that is so passionate that quenches our own love and desires for the world. A love that is so passionate that it leads to radical living. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. I mentioned that we're starting a three-week series this morning, and it's, it's called Compelled by Grace. And over the next couple of weeks, as we come, come closer to Easter, we're really going to just look at the, the things that love or, or the grace of God and what that compels us to do as Christians. See, the grace of God is the foundation for all that we do. And the grace of God is first and foremost found in the love of Christ and seeing that love that is offered up for us. The Bible is filled with examples of this love that God has for his people. We could go many places, but I just want to zero in on one passage this morning. And that is in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. If you want to know the best way to love others, if you want to know the best way to love God himself, the answer is simple. To understand and to experience the love of God in Jesus for you. That's what this morning's text is all about. The love of God for us inspires a passionate love for him when we completely and fully understand it. Put it another way, the love Christ has shown motivates our own. The love Christ has shown to us motivates our own love for God and also for others. If you want to know the key to radical living, the key to faithful living here in Northwest Iowa, it is to know the love of God for you. That's what Paul teaches here in this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 14 and 15. Now this, uh, the book of 2 Corinthians is a pretty interesting book because it's written to a pretty messed up church. They had a lot of issues that were facing them and it's taken place, or this, this section is actually found in a larger passage that talks about uh, Paul defending his ministry. A lot of the people in that day thought that Paul uh, really just didn't have pure motives for what he was doing. They looked at Paul's life. They looked at all the things that Paul was doing for the gospel. And they said, hold up. Wait a second. What's the catch here? What's going on? How are you living like this? What are you getting out of this? Why are you living this way? In response to that, Paul writes 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. I invite you to follow along. 
says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul responds to his critics. I'm not, I'm not motivated by personal greed. I'm not motivated by pride or a search for power. I'm motivated by one thing, the love of God that he has for me. There's this Christian, his name is Brennan Manning. Maybe you've heard of him. He's, a, he's an author. And he wrote this when he was talking about the, the deepest thing that he was aware of about himself. He said this, My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ, and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. I think that's what Paul is saying here, too. The most basic understanding Paul had of himself was that he was loved by God and that he had done nothing to deserve that love. And that's the love that we are talking about here. We're searching for the deepest understanding of ourselves and the fact that we are loved by God. And that's when we reach this pure motivation of doing things out of a love for God or being compelled by the love of God to love ourselves. The same can be true of us. We can respond with love once we understand this love. The love Christ has shown motivates our own. Let's look at these verses a little bit more in depth. Following that, that phrase, the love Christ has shown motivates our own, and breaking it apart uh, into a couple more phrases. So first, the love Christ has shown. Let's talk about the love of Christ that he has shown to us and, and the significance of that love. Uh, let's reread verse 14. It says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. How can we describe the love of Christ? I want to share a story with you uh, that I first read from uh, Marshall Seagal in his book, uh, Killjoys. He tells the story of this man and his wife. And he shares this. He says, uh, the man, he tells it from the perspective of the husband. He says, uh, his wife was gone again. And she had left plenty in the past, but this time it just seemed like it was different. All the constant moments of uh, abandonment and adultery had, had left their family in ruins. Had it really just been three different men in, in six months, or were there more than that? Their family affairs would have been wrecked by her own. A marriage that once was sweet had now been left as a living nightmare. Marital bliss seemed like it was far behind, replaced with pain, replaced with heartache, all because of his wife's constant search for love away from him. To make matters worse, he had two children of his, they had two children of their own, and he had to face the questions of, where's mommy? Every single night when he put them to bed. They were loved by their father, but abandoned by their mother, and they only knew despair. At one point, he uh, hoped to repair this marriage. He thought that he would do better in his life, but now it seemed like that was an impossibility. Weeks went by, and, and he didn't really know what to do with himself. And one night, he was praying with his children as he was tucking them into bed. And he began to not even know what to pray, but he just said, God, please bring my wife home. Please rescue her. She's left me. She's left our children and our love for the love of others. She believed the lie that she would find protection and satisfaction and affection from someone else. 
God, bring her back. Let us return, or let her remember us and return to be a wife. Let her return to be a mom. And if it comes, and if she comes home, God, I promise that I will welcome her home. I will welcome her with open arms in the same way like on our wedding day. Just bring her home. And several years passed. And he was walking through the park. He had intentions to meet with a client over lunch in the park, but he was beginning to think that that wasn't that great of an idea with all the heat and the humidity that he was experiencing. And off in the distance, he saw a woman. This woman was clinging to this water fountain, trying to suck every last drop of water from this water fountain. She was dirty. She was disheveled, like a complete mess, desperate for this water. And he tried not to make eye contact with her, tried not to stare and be rude. But as he grew closer closer to her, he looked at her face and he said, Hannah, is that you? Hannah, is that you? He looked deep into the eyes of the woman who had hurt him so deeply. And she shocked, looked away in shame. She saw the life of provision, the life of love, and and honestly affection and security that she had left behind for a world of temporary pleasures and said nothing. And so he tried again. Hannah, why are you out here? And after years of not hearing her voice, he heard her say in response, I have nowhere else to go. I had to get away from him. I'm hungry. I'm tired, I'm scared, and I'm thirsty. The man began to pray to God silently and said, God, is this the moment that I've been praying for all these years where our paths have crossed once more? God, please bring my wife home. And he replied to his wife, trying to convey in every syllable love, and said, come home, Hannah. Come home home. I will take care of you. I will provide for you. I will protect you. You will never be thirsty again. His wife was clearly caught off guard by this, and she wasn't sure how to respond, and the shame seemed too great, and so she just turned away from him because of his piercing eyes, his gentle smile were too much for her to handle. And so he said again, come home. I love you. She stood, shocked. The man she had left because she thought she could find affection and love and satisfaction elsewhere. I just said, I love you. And so stumbling through the words, she said, you can't love me. You don't know what I've done. And he said, yes, I do. I know about each of the men, all of them. I know that you are running away from one of them right now. I know what you've done, Hannah. Come home. And she said in response, you can't love me. I'm not worthy of your love. And he said, Hannah, I've never loved you because you were worthy. I've loved you because you are mine. When you ran after the love of others, my love remained. When you walked away from my love, your, my love remained. When you turned your back on our marriage, my love remained. Come home. And when you hear that story, maybe overwhelmed by the love of this husband, 
might be disgusted, frankly, with Hannah. But the reality is each and every one of us is Hannah. Each and every one of us has turned our back on God. The book of Hosea actually tells us that God looks at his people as his bride. The entire New Testament uses the imagery of Christ and the church as a a husband and his bride. In fact, at the end of Revelation, there is a great wedding between Christ and the church. Have you ever looked at your sin as spiritual adultery? Have you ever looked at your sin as an act of treason, as an act of rebellion against God? Everything that we do that is not right in God's eyes, we're turning our back on him. We're seeking after pride. We're seeking after uh, work. We're seeking after affection elsewhere. And God says, come home. That's the love of Christ that Paul is referring to. That's the love that God has shown us in Jesus. In the book of Romans, Paul tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not only that, not only while we were still sinners, but actually says a few verses later that we were enemies of God. And the story I just told doesn't really give justice to the love of God. Because not only did he love a bride who sought after others, God loved his enemies and died for them to make them his bride. Many of us have been in church before. We know the words to Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. We know about the love of God for us. It's a pretty basic concept. But if we're honest, we can sometimes forget that love. We can sometimes uh, take it for granted in our lives. That's Paul realizes that. That's why as he's writing to the church in Ephesus, which is a relatively healthy church, he prays this for them. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through, through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. According to him, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. What is Paul saying in this prayer? It's a simple prayer. He's asking that the church in Ephesus would understand three simple words more and more each day. Those three words, Jesus loves me. He wanted them to know the great love that God had for them. And that's honestly my prayer for our church too, here in Spencer, up in Spirit Lake, that we would know more fully each and every day the great love that God has for us, that we would not forget the great love that Christ has for his bride, that we would fall more and more in love with him each and every day. Now, some of us have been in church all of our lives. We, frankly, knew the words to Jesus loves me before we could even say words, before we could even talk. 
And sometimes love is just an intellectual exercise. It's just something that goes on up here. Maybe you've felt that way before. You know that God loves you, but you don't really feel the love of God for you. And if that's you, pray that your head and your heart would be connected. That what you knew in your head would be true in your heart and what you would experience. There was a preacher in the UK in the middle of the 20th century. His name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he describes what it was like when he first made this connection uh, from his head to his heart. I just want to read this excerpt to you. It says this, The fuses of love are so overloaded they almost blow out. The subconscious doubts that he wasn't thinking about at the time, but that the pop-up every now and then are gone. And in their place... And in their place is utter and indestructible assurance so that you know that you know that you know that God is real and that Jesus lives and that you are loved and to be saved is the greatest thing in the world. And as you walk down on the street, you can scarcely contain yourself. You want to cry out, my father loves me. My father loves me. Oh, what a great father I have. What a father, what a father, what a father. This is what it's like to experience the love that God has for his people. And I hope and pray that we would be able to say the same thing. This is the love that Martin Lloyd Jones describes. That's the love that ruled in Paul's heart. This is the love that compelled him to radical service. And as that love that is available to each and every one of us. See, the love, understanding the love of God can ebb and flow. There'll be times where we you know, just feel super close to God. We can feel his love. There are other times where we are, frankly, going through a dry spell where we know God loves us, but we can't experience it. We don't feel like God loves us. And so what do we do with that? What do we do when we don't feel the love of God, when we recognize the love of God, but we don't feel it in our hearts? Well, there are, I think, two simple things that we can do. Two radically basic things. First, I already mentioned it, pray. Pray the prayer that actually Paul shares in Ephesians chapter 3. That God would reveal more of his love to you each and every day. Notice what Paul doesn't pray there. He doesn't say that God would love us more. He says that we would understand the love of God more. Pray that God would reveal to you more of his love. Now this might not happen instantly. It might take a while of praying. But God will answer that prayer. So the first thing you should do is pray if you want to experience the love of God more. Second thing, again, most basic, is study. Open the Word of God. Dive into it. Take a look at it. This has happened a couple times in my life. Uh, I just want to share one of them with you. When I was in seminary, I was uh, taking this really hard class on um, the Acts and the Pauline epistles. So it covered a lot of the New Testament in one class. And as I was studying for this class's final, it was the hardest professor in the school, or at the school. It was the hardest exam at the school. As I'm wrestling through and preparing for this, I'm I'm spending hours going through the Greek and learning all that kind of stuff. I'm spending hours studying the different theological concepts that Paul talks about. And as I'm getting ready to take this test, 
I come to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, and I'll always remember this. Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22, and I'm, I'm reading it in the Greek as I'm sweating bullets about this exam. And I, kept, I keep seeing it, and I'm writing an essay on it and talking about what Christ has done for the Christian. What Christ has done for the Christian. He's done this and this and this. And at some point, God just hit me, almost like with a two-by-four. and said, Jordan, you're that Christian. I remember, I'm not much of a crier, but I broke down in the middle of my final. And there were probably other people that were crying in that final for different reasons. But I was crying because of the love of God for us. Just this past week, as I was preparing our life group worksheets, I was meeting with Pat Kelly from our Spirit Lake campus, and we write the worksheets together. And he came uh, with a passage from Romans. And I just love this passage. And said, we should, we should include this. And this is Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through the end of the chapter. It says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine? Shall nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When Pat shared that on Wednesday night, I've heard that passage probably a hundred times. In fact, I'm going to change this now after I say this, but that's actually the password to all of my accounts, Romans 8.35. So now I'm going to change that, so don't try breaking into anything. That's how much I know that passage. And yet it just clicked. Just hit me that this is the love God has for us. And this love we can never run away from. We can never be separated from us. So you want to know how to experience the love of God more. Pray that he would reveal it to you and study. Spend time in his word. It seems so, so basic. But it's so, so true. That that is the way God reveals his love to us. And it is this love that compels our own love. The love Christ has shown motivates our own. Let's keep going. And the next, it says that this love of Christ actually motivates us. Let's reread verse 14. It says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded, that, we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. What motivates your life? What is the motivation for the things that you do in your life? Psychologists tell us that there are a number of different motivations that, that people have. Uh, some of the most basic motivations are a search for power. A lot of people are motivated by power. They want more of it, and so they will do what is necessary to accomplish that task, to get more power. Some people are motivated by affluence. They want to be wealthy, and so they will do whatever is necessary to have more. 
Other people are motivated by fear. They are scared of someone who is above them, and so they will do whatever it is necessary to avoid disappointing that person, avoid getting uh, told off by the person who is above them. So others are motivated by uh, appreciation. They like being appreciated. They like being told good job after they do something. And so the reason why they do things is so that people will tell them good job. There are thousands of different sources of motivation that we could talk about. But Paul mentions one. And it's the one we just talked about. The source of motivation that should govern the Christian's life. And that is this. The love of Christ. The, Christ, the, the love Christ has for us. When we begin to understand the love of God, it leads to a different life. That's what Paul had experienced. See, Paul was accused of being motivated by greed. Paul was accused of being motivated by jealousy of the ministry of others. Paul was accused of being motivated by pride. And in response to all those things, Paul says, no, I'm not motivated by any of that. I'm motivated by the love that God has shown me in Jesus. And I love the language that he uses here. When he's talking about the love, or the way that this motivates him. Notice what he says. He says that this love of Christ controls him. This isn't just some sort of weak motivation. This is a controlling love. This word controls is actually used in the Gospels a couple times. And in the Gospels, it's actually used to refer to a couple different things. First, it's used to, pe- to refer to people who are demon-possessed. They are controlled by a demon. Second, it is used to refer to people who are very sick. They are controlled by their sickness. Third, it's also used for people who are in prison. They are controlled, very literally, by people who are above them. And Paul uses this word to say, you want to know what controls me? You want to know what compels me, which honestly forces me to do everything that I'm doing in my ministry because there's no other logical explanation. There's no other option for me. He says, it's the love of Christ for me. That's why I love the way he refers to it. It controls me. Paul is very literally controlled by the love that God has for him. He can't do anything but follow him. Can't do anything but serve God. He's controlled by the love of God. It's it's crucial, honestly, for us to have that same motivation because it's the only legitimate source of motivation in our lives. Let's let's talk about an example. Let's say you're going to invite a friend to church. Okay? But you're not going to invite that friend to church because you want, uh, because of the love God has for you and you want them to experience that same love. You have a different reason why you want to invite that friend to church. So what are some options? Well, some of us could invite that friend to church because we, uh, we think it's the right thing to do. It's actually what we're supposed to do. The Bible tells us to. So we do it. But if we're not careful... The reason why we're doing it is actually because God said so, and I'm frankly afraid that God is going to be mad at me if I don't. And we're actually trying to earn our approval before God if we don't have the right motivation before him. Another example. Let's say we're motivated by jealousy. We are jealous of other churches in town that are larger than us. And so, well, we want to go to a bigger church, and so we decide to start inviting friends. Well, that's a really self-centered reason to invite people. Maybe we're motivated by fear. We're scared of what God is going to do to us if we don't invite people. And so we invite 
But in doing that, we're spreading news about a God who isn't loving, but a God who is to be feared. Our motive matters. Our motive in life matters. Our wrong motives will not only be unhelpful, but they will ultimately fail us. If we are compelled to love others because we are scared of God, then we will eventually stop. We will eventually fail in that. If we are compelled to love others because we are jealous of others, our love will eventually grow cold. But if we love others, if we love God because of the love he has for us, then that will lead to the right motive. In fact, that is the right motive for all that we do. It will never burn out. It will never go away. The love Christ has shown motivates our own. Let's focus uh, on that last few words there, our own. What is it that, uh, what does the love of Christ motivate us to do? It motivates us to love others. Hear these words. Uh, this is verse 15. It says this, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's the reason why Jesus died, so that we could die as well. That's a pretty interesting statement, so let me explain that. Christ died to save us from eternal punishment, yes. But also... Christ died to make us a part of his new creation. And a part of becoming a part of that new creation is to die to our old self, which is controlled by the passions of the flesh, to live for something greater in our lives. And that's what Paul refers to and says, when we no longer live for ourselves, we now live for him who gave himself up for us. What is it that compels Paul? The love of Christ. What does it compel him to do? To live for Christ. To love Christ himself. That's what Paul is arguing for our lives, for his life, for every single Christian on the face of the planet. To love Christ because Christ loves us. To love others because Christ loves us. The love Christ has shown motivates our own. See, Christ's love motivates our love for God. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John that we love because he first loved us. It's impossible for us to love God without first being loved by him. In the same way, it's impossible for us to truly love those who are around us without first being loved by God, without first experiencing that love of God. And it is this love that motivates all that we do. See, the opposite is true, too. There aren't many options that Paul gives us when he says that the love of Christ controls us to live for Christ, to love others. It doesn't seem like it's possible to understand the love of God, to understand what Christ has done for us, and to not love others, to not love God in return. If we don't, then we don't understand the love of God. If we do, then we will. The love Christ has shown to us motivates our own. When we understand the love God has for us, we will love him, we will love others, we will care for others, and we will serve well. Now, one caveat 
to all this. A lot of times when we talk about love, we think of it as an emotional feeling, and, and that is part of it. But love is also just an action. There are going to be times where we don't feel like loving those who are around us. And yet the love that Christ has shown us compels us to love them in return. It's a part of what God has for us as his followers. And so as we close, I just want to ask one question. What is the love of Christ compelling you to do this week? What is the great love of God for you in Jesus Christ controlling you to do this week? A couple ideas. In the past, I've shared that we um, should do one tangible thing, whether it's big or small, as an application of sacrifice and serving others. That's, that's good. But I think that God is calling us to focus on the big. It's more tangible. What is one radical, selfless sacrifice that God is calling you to make this week? It could be as simple as just inviting a friend to church, sharing the gospel with them. For some of us, it might be getting to know someone who isn't a Christian so that way you can someday invite them to church. Could be a financial commitment, a financial sacrifice, buying groceries for the person who's behind you in the grocery store, giving more to the church for the benevolent offering, making a great sacrifice of some way. The love Christ has shown motivates our own. I don't know what God is calling you to do, but he is calling us to respond in love, to respond to his love with love. As we continue through this series over the next couple of weeks, this is really going to be the foundation for all that we talk about. What Christ has done for us and what that leads us to do as Christians. We're going to try to focus on being, uh, looking outside of the walls of this church and not just focused on ourselves. This is the foundation that love Christ has shown us motivates our own love. It's not only the foundation of this series, but also the foundation of everything we do as Christians. And that love is deep. That love is radical. That love is sacrificial. And I hope and I pray that that's the same love that we can show to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great love you showed us by sending your son to the cross. God, what a privilege it is to be a part of your family, to be called your children, and to be a part of your church, which is your bride. God, I pray that you would help us to know more and more with each passing day the great love you have for us. That you would reveal more and more to us how much you love us, what you have done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.